Now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk650andkste.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Happy Sunday morning to you. Happy Labor Day weekend to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension, Lifetime Master Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com, all the ranting at the Farmer Fred Ramp blog page at Twitter.com slash FarmerFredDaily, Garden Tips, lots of snark, and the uh, Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page which now contains everything you would ever need to know about the oriental fruit fly and the infestation that was found of that fly in Sacramento, in the city of Sacramento, and what the authorities are doing to help control, suppress, eradicate, really, that pest. And um, it's going to be interesting because the oriental fruit fly is a pest of something like 250 different agricultural crops, so they want to stop it before it spreads out of the city limits into all the farmland of the Delta and beyond because an oriental fruit fly can fly up to 30 miles a day. And so far they found 15 of these flies in traps in an area near um, oh the, the Lemon Hill area of Sacramento, basically near Stockton Boulevard and Elder Creek, I do believe. And 14 were males, one was female. It was the female that had them worried uh, speaking of females, Debbie Flower is here. Not, not to compare you to an Oriental. <laughs> and I could fly, fly thirty miles in a day. I am woman. Uh, consulting horticulturist, former college professor of horticulture. I'm sure in your pest classes, you've probably talked about the Oriental fruit fly and other fruit flies. Well, you talk about whatever's hot at the moment. So yes, if yeah. it were, yeah. And the uh, Oriental fruit fly is can be a very voracious pest that has a very quick lifespan so it can reproduce quite quickly what it does it lays its eggs inside the fruit it does like like i say 250 different crops amazing number yeah and the maggots then basically make that fruit unsellable as a result so anyway uh, everything you need to know about the what the authorities will be doing the california department of food and agriculture and the uh, County Ag Department as far as controlling these within the quarantine zone, which is 123 square miles in the city of Sacramento. And we're going to be talking more about that later when we talk with Julie Jensen, the uh, county ag commissioner. But uh, they're just happy that the oriental fruit fly can be controlled by rather soft means, Debbie, Mm -hmm. in that uh, the traps they're first putting out have a pheromone to attract the male flies mm-hmm. and then a active ingredient spinosad which is an organically acceptable insecticide to mm-hmm. basically kill those male flies and if you don't have boys the girls have nothing to do right so they, so they're not like aphids who can reproduce without a boy around yes they need the boy around right exactly okay. so that that's the good news and the fact they can be controlled with mild pesticides there is no aerial spraying involved don't worry about that good so they're starting with the bait stations on properties where they're actually finding the flies they're using a spinosad foliar spray on the trees Mm -hmm. and only as a last resort would they strip the trees of the fruit Mm -hmm. and but what they're so the home but what do homeowners in need to know they they need to know if they're in the area right well the uh the traps that the CDFA and uh, the County Ag Commissioner are putting out are rather extensive throughout that 123-square-mile area. Mm-hmm. But what they're telling homeowners to do as far as the fruit you have growing, don't take it out of the quarantine zone. Consume it on your premises. 
bury it in a compost pile or process it. Turn the tomatoes into salsa, turn the peaches into peach jam, uh, dehydrate Would freezing it. help? Freezing would help. Mm-hmm. Yes, any way that you process it mm-hmm. would obviously kill the maggots. Just don't remove it from your property. And if you're throwing away spoiled fruit or fruit that's fallen, double bag it and put it in the regular trash, not in the green waste. Mm-hmm. And they've already uh, had discussions with the uh, waste dis- uh, disposal companies. They're going to process th- that trash a lot quicker and get it buried quicker okay so in that quarantine zone so they're what they're saying is don't you don't have to call the ag department if you f- have fallen fruit which was one of the original suggestions in the press was that double bag it then call the county ag commissioner and they'll come pick it up well they might kinda, be a little too busy for yeah that. exactly and and so what they're saying is doing following the cdfa recommendations which is double bag it put it in your regular trash not your green waste and uh, that can help uh, control the spread of it. And again, do not move it away from your property. Basically, consume it uh, on your property. So you need to know if you're in the quarantine area. Yes, you need to know if you're in a quarantine area. If you go to the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook uh-huh. page, you can click on a map that will show you the exact boundaries of that quarantine area. And all right, I can I can actually kind of read it off for you as far as what the boundaries are. Uh, in the area for that, if I could find it. Um, did I put it in here? Where did I put it? I put it someplace else. I'll tell you later. Okay, I won't forget about that because that's important stuff. Yeah, that is important. You need to know if you're in that area because that will influence what you do. Yeah. What do I do with it? See, this is why the kids use a computer <laughs> and I use paper because paper gets lost and who loses a computer these days? All right. Here's an interesting story about how the dancy is really a tangerine and not a mandarin. Oh, really? Yeah. Ed, Ed Live and I have been going round and round about, uh, is it a mandarin or is it a tangerine? And he has found evidence that the dancy came from Morocco, from the region of Tangiers. Oh, and, wow. and could actually be a separate species that originated in that area of North Africa, as opposed to the, uh, what is it? Something like a kumquat or a, yeah, is a separate species. But there's questions about that because a lot of the Mandarin varieties that they discovered in Morocco and the surround Algeria and that surrounding area Mm -hmm. may have actually originated in China. Oh, wow. And maybe brought over Marco Polo times. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're not really sure of the origin. So, but anyway, the Dancy Tangerine, which was uh, started to be marketed back in the late 1890s, is thought to be a true Tangiers variety, but they're not sure. So, wow. So in that ongoing discussion of Mandarin versus Tangerine, uh, the thinking is really they're all Mandarins, mm-hmm. but there may actually be a separate species. And whether the Dancy is or not, we don't know, but there may actually be a species. A species, but all of all the mandarin varieties in circulation now, it is thought that at one point they all originated in China, which would make them mandarins. Okay, all right. So you asked for that scenic bypass. Another case it. of everything we know is wrong. Everything we know is wrong. Yes. Yeah. No, I knew about this Dancy story before, so I wasn't that surprised. But the question of an entire region's 
population of citrus trees actually originating someplace else. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So anyway, you wanted uh, the borders for the Oriental Fruit Fly in Sacramento. The quarantine zone measures 123 square miles. It's bordered on the north by El Camino, on the south by Laguna Boulevard, on the west by the Sacramento River, and on the east by Bradshaw Road, give or take a few blocks. Right. There's a little bit of West Sacramento included. And, yeah, and there's a little bit of West, and that this is just the the Sacramento. You, I keep forgetting about the bureaucracies involved in all this. And when you're talking to the Sacramento County Ag Commissioner, mm-hmm. they're not that concerned about what's happening in, say, Yolo County. That Well, you have to call them and find out. But actually, Which the, is West Sacramento yeah, is in Yolo County. So, But that quarantine zone does extend into Yolo County mm-hmm. in some very prolific ag regions, actually, in mm-hmm. the Delta. So that's what they're trying to do is keep the spread of this pest from getting into the uh, the Delta agricultural region. So, they're, I mean, they haven't found that pest since the original find. They found the 15... A couple of weeks ago, they reported it last week, and I was talking to the CDFA on Thursday, and they were saying, fortunately, we haven't found anything in the last week in our traps. And so do we know how long this quarantine is going to last? Months. It'll last for months, because even though it's having a, with the heat, the oriental fruit fly does reproduce rapidly. Mm -hmm. But as the weather cools, the generations slow down. So to make sure it's going to happen, they have to monitor several generations. Right. And so their thinking is it, it could take uh, six months Okay, for them to say, hey, the quarantine's up. So don't move your fruit out of your quarantine area. Right. Um, Produce, really, it, because it, it is such a wide host range for this pest. I mean, it's not just fruit, although most of the uh, products uh, that uh, the oriental fruit fly does affect are fruits. But uh, could it be things like um, Nandina berries or, uh, you know, things we would use ornamentally? uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's even California native plants that might be uh, uh, involved in this. So anything we're growing should not be moved out of the quarantine area. Correct. I mean, the, the, the short list here, it's not the 250 list, but the short list includes in alphabetical order, apple, apricot, avocado, bell pepper, fig, grape, grapefruit, lemon, lime, melons. I'll add mandarin here because they use tangerine. Uh, nectarine, orange, peach, pear, persimmon, plum, pomegranate, tangerine, tomato, and walnut. Okay. But uh, talking with Julie Jensen, the county ag commissioner, for some reason, they do not attack strawberries. Hmm. And that is a, a, a rather major truck farm product. Yes, it is. In Sacramento County, when you see an acre or two of strawberries right. scattered around in various places. So that's uh, good news for that. However, does the quarantine apply to strawberries? You, They're saying don't move any produce. So It's probably wise not to yeah. move it. They may be sitting on it or getting a drink from it. You never know. Yep. All right, we have to take a break. When we come back, let's talk homemade pesticides. All righty. Shall we? Yes. We'll do that when we come back to wherever we are. Get growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Along with Debbie Flower, answering your gardening questions at 1-916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Hi, Terry. Haven't said hi to the excellent board operator, Terry, who has gets very busy around 11 o'clock with the garden grappler. So... 
Glad to have him along on this holiday weekend. And uh, Jack is on the phone with us from Rio Linda. Jack, thanks for giving us a call. Hi, Fred. Hi there. Now, we, we should point out, Jack emailed me earlier this week, and he's a Yolo County Master Gardener, and he had questions about Epsom salts. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, and well, I said, call the show. That would be a good topic. Yeah. Program a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, I think it was Pam Bondi. I can't recall for sure. It would be Pam Bone, probably. It, right. It, and sort of, you know, offhandedly, you made the reference that Epsom salts, kind of old school. And so, I mean, I, I typically will plant um, my tomatoes with a, about half a cup of Epsom salt. And so I was curious as to whether I was wasting my time or money doing this. And so um, I, I've, been, I've been researching whether or not there's any benefit of using Epsom salt. And what I'm, what I'm finding is that um, it's, it's fine for magnesium deficiencies, but, right. but, then, but then there are some writers that, um, like I'm particularly on the National Gardening Association webpage, there's a Charles Nardozzi, who uh, is a East Coast kind of garden consultant and has, is on public radio and so forth. And he did a test, uh, or conducted a study, I should say, to see whether or not a foilar spray uh, was beneficial on peppers, tomatoes, and roses, and 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 his folks uh, seem to suggest that a foiler spray, even though you've got adequate uh, levels in the soil, that it's beneficial for peppers and roses and tomatoes. And I I wondered if you guys had had any experience um, with this, and if you know of any studies, because I there's a Clemson University study that says that that uh, it's useful only if you have a magnesium deficiency. and um, But but then there's all of this uh, sort of uh, anecdotal evidence that it's very useful. What do you guys think? Did you uh, get that link I sent you to Linda Chalker Scott up at uh, Washington State University and what she wrote about? Uh, I, I sure did. And I, and I, you know, I had, I, I, she got those claims from the, uh, there's actually an Epsom Salts Council. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't find much information on who the Epsom Salts Council was. Or, <laughs> but they they did list all of those claims on their website that she, you know, says myth. And I, I, and I know she sort of um, has a column on exploding garden myths. And I also found uh, the, the, the blog, I think it's Jeff Gilman, yeah. Um, and uh, but she she doesn't really cite any studies any more than the other side does. I mean, she says research says that this is all nonsense, but I, I can't find other than the the Clemson study, I, I can't find um, where anyone has has addressed it. And the studies that that they do have, there's one out of uh, Delaware College in Pennsylvania and Auburn University, and, and their tests are with putting Epsom salt into the soil. And they they contend that unless you've got a magnesium deficiency, that you may even be contributing to problems such as blossom and rot. Well, let's talk but, first about I, I studies. whether the foiler spray makes a difference and what do you guys think? Well, let's talk about studies, first of all. I don't pay any attention to studies unless it is in a peer-reviewed journal. Yeah, it has to be published. It has to be in a legitimate peer-reviewed journal. 
And that way you know that they use the scientific method in conducting the tests. I mean, I conduct tests all the time, but I'm not about to say that it was in a peer-reviewed journal. It's just based on my own personal experience with Charles Nardozzi. It's based on his personal findings. Was that study in a in a peer-reviewed journal? I tend to doubt it because there haven't been much in the way of studying of of using Epsom salts as a foliar uh, feeder. And then you you get the question, I like to call it uh, the the Pete Strasser argument. Pete Strasser Mm -hmm. used to be the plant pathologist at Capital Nursery, back when Capital Nursery was in business. And when when somebody call and talk about using vinegar to kill weeds or or using uh, Epsom salts to put around your roses, he would say, on that box of Epsom salts, did it have instructions on it for uh, application around plants? No. Then it's not registered for use. For doing which makes that, it illegal. Which makes it uh, illegal, yes. I mean, if it was a legal fertilizer or pesticide, I think there has to be an EPA number. I know there has to be an EPA mm-hmm. number on pesticides. Does there have to be an EPA number on fertilizers? No. Okay. But uh, basically, Epsom salts are not registered for use as uh, a soil amendment. And yeah, that bottle of Heinz vinegar you buy at the grocery store, there's nothing on there that talks about it killing weeds. Uh, it's just like, you know, if it makes you feel better, fine. But as far as the dangers to the soil of increasing the magnesium, there is a problem there. So you don't really want to do that. And as Linda Chalker Scott points out in the summary of that whole thing that she wrote there, and it was rather extensive about Epsom salts, she says the science behind the use of Epsom salts is only applicable to intensive crop production in situations where magnesium is known to be deficient in the soil or in the plants. It's irresponsible to advise gardeners and other plant enthusiasts to apply Epsom salts or any chemical without regard to soil conditions, plant needs, and environmental health. And, Jack, you would know that as a master gardener, basically you are limited to what the University of California recommends. And do you see yeah. do you see any University of California recommendations on the use of Epsom salts as a fertilizer or a pesticide? Oh, no, 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 no I don't. It, it, in fact, that, that, that really sort of what was kind of prompting my, my, my question is that, I mean, I understand that, that I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm finding just a real dearth of, of any, any research. And I, believe me, I understand the concerns about the, the salts in the soil and using, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, lifestyle remedies and so forth. But um, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the absence of, I mean, because, I mean, we both know, I think, that Epsom salt, you I mean, you, you, like you say, you search the Internet, you get a lot of nonsense. My gosh. <laughs> I mean, some of the claims made for this stuff are incredible. Yeah, I mean, just, and, and that's wow. all they are. They're claims. There's no yeah, science wow. behind them. I would want to know uh, what... Uh, uh, more about Charles Nardozzi's uh, test of Epsom salts. For instance, did he use, uh, did he have control plants that he sprayed with water? And especially like in our environment where we don't get rain for a long time, and this year we've had all the ash from the from the uh, fires nearby, um, just washing the plant off would have an effect. Uh, and so did he control for that? The other thing I'd want to know is a soil test before he did the Epsom salts and afterwards, uh, Epsom salts are magnesium sulfate. Magnesium is the center molecule in chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is what makes a plant green, which is what makes uh, allows a plant to make f- its own food from uh, li- 
light energy. So it's very critical in keeping a plant green. Um, but magnesium can get tied up in the soil if the phosphorus levels in the soil are very high. Uh, we learned, oh, it's been, I don't know, maybe 10 years when there was a phosphorus deficiency worldwide that we've been applying way too much phosphorus to our soils, and it is now recommended we do not apply phosphorus to our soils. Perhaps he was gardening in, in a place where he had applied phosphorus for years and it had built up, built up um, and uh, the uh, magnesium uh, would become deficient because it would not be... It's tied up by the phosphorus. And so then applications, foliar, it would not be absorbed into the plant foliarly. It's too big of a molecule. There's too, I could go on and on about that. That would not have worked. You're a big fan of foliar feeding. No, I am not a fan of foliar feeding, and I've researched it, and it's only limited, very limited use uh, in getting nutrients into plants. But by putting it on the outside of the plant, it's obviously dropping to the soil and getting into the soil. So perhaps his soil was high in phosphorus, making the magnesium unavailable to the plant, and this change in the magnesium-phosphorus balance allowed the plant to get more uh, magnesium. So there are a lot of factors outside that I would have wished to know about Charles Nardozzi's test before we could pass uh, judgment on that. The other thing to understand is that um, um, Epsom salts are very toxic to fish, and to algae. And so if it gets into any body of water and is very soluble in water and will travel very long distances in water, um, we could be damaging our uh, waterways and the life in our waterways. Yeah, you had mentioned that you had found something where somebody was using Epsom salts as an algicide. Yes. And that is It can be labeled, yes. But again, that box of Epsom salts does not have that. Right, you have to buy the one that says it can be used as an algicide. Right, so there's that too. I, I understand, and and, and just you know, Ed Nordosi is identified as a senior horticulturist for National Gardening, and what he did was he had six testers in uh, California, um, Iowa, Tennessee, and Minnesota, and he had them grow a gypsy pepper, uh, six pepper plants, and three they used this uh, Epsom salt on, and three they didn't. And then he asked that they take two established rose bushes and um, uh, apply a, the, the Epsom salts to one but not the other. Uh, four of the six reported their peppers were, you know, noticeably improved. And and, and so, you know, the, the soils can't have to be different. And they identified one galvis in Alameda, I think, and um, another fellow, I can't remember where he was, was from, that they reported kind of dramatic uh, results, but but Debbie, I was interested in your observation that that the molecules are too big to go through the the leaves. That I I don't hear well sometimes on the phone. Is that what I understood you to say? Yes, foliar oh. feeding. Anything that's absorbed by the plant through foliar feeding actually goes through uh, an opening in the guard cells of the stomata. It does not go through the stoma. It goes through an opening uh, in the guard cells, and that opening has a charge. Uh, think magnets, pluses and minuses, uh, and plants, nutrients that plants use for uh, inside of themselves are absorbed primarily as ions. So ions are charged. Uh, so if the, and I don't know, the, I don't remember the charge in the opening in the, so it's an opening in a single cell. So it's a very tiny hole. And so the physical size of the molecule matters. The other thing that matters is the charge of the molecule. 
uh, and if it's un, if it's positive, you know, one charge it will be it will just attach to the to the opening. The other charge it will be repelled. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a neutral uh, molecule. So when foliar feeding is used for micronutrient deficiencies such as iron, the iron has to be what's called chelated, and chelated means that it's wrapped in a uh, uh, substance that has no charge. Otherwise, it will never get through that opening. And that opening is uh, most effective um, at night. Most of the the studies have have shown that foliar feeding is most effective at night. So the stoma are closed and the the nutrient is getting into the plant uh, through this uh, hole in a single cell. And then it's all evidence except for one study that was done way back in the 50s all evidence says that the molecule stays in the leaf. It does not travel around inside of the plant. It stays in the leaf. The study well, done. The study done in the 50s was done with a radioactive molecule, and um, it, it's never been replicated, which means it's bad science. You have to be able to replicate the experiment in order to prove that it's good science and that it is true. Uh, and I talked to a medical doctor once, who was a student of mine, who said that in medic medical studies when they've done. Um, uh, irradiate studies with irradiated elements and such inside the body. Sometimes the irradiation separates from the other thing that they're trying to track, and so maybe that's I don't have proof, but maybe that's what happened to this in the '50s study with things getting in the leaf because the irradiation moved through the plant, but uh, nobody else has ever been able to prove that the nutrient itself has moved through the plant. So uh, foliar feeding basically does nothing. Uh, except <laughs> correct micronutrient deficiencies in the leaf that it touches. Will this information be on the final? <laughs> you betcha. <Yeah. laughs> All right. Well, you know, I tell you, that's really fascinating because, I mean, to, to, to read these things, you think, oh, my gosh, you spray it on the leaves and it goes right into the plant, makes a healthier plant and stronger cell walls and all of this good stuff. Well, it doesn't sound like that's really possible. Correct. I think it does a fine job washing off the leaves right. and, and cleaning and getting the Getting to aphids. the soil yeah. at the at the drip line where there are feeder roots yeah. that can absorb it. And yes. you're spending time with your plants, studying them, looking for other problems. Right. And there's nothing exactly. wrong with spending time with your plants. It's a wonderful thing to yeah. do. I'm not saying don't do it. Just don't expect <laughs> yeah, to do it. Right. Jack, we have to run here. We're running horribly late. <laughs> hey, well, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Terry's getting nervous in there. We'll take a short break. More of Get Growing on the Way on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Along with Debbie Flower and a Garden Grappler coming your way at 11 a.m. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. Clue available at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page with a picture I took <laughs> of, of pesticides sitting on a garbage can lid. I saw that picture. Yes. Now, did you notice something very unique about the products in those pictures? No. Each of them were from a different, shall we say, class of pesticide. Okay. Class based on how... What it kills or what what it it controls. Okay. Okay. Got it. There was an insecticide. Mm -hmm. There was an herbicide. Mm -hmm. There was a molluscicide. Molluscicide. How do you say it? I think the last version, molluscicide. Okay. But I, you say it a snail proudly killer. and smile. There you that, go. Then you know it's right. Thank you, Warren <laughs> Roberts. Yep. There was a miticide, mm-hmm. and there was a fungicide. Mm-hmm. So there you have fun. So they kill insects, herbicide kills weeds, molluscicide kills mollusks, which snails. is slugs and snails. Slugs and snails, yeah. Fungicide kills fungus. Yes. 
and I don't remember miticides. Miticide kill mites, which are spiders yes. or spider mites. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and and there are more. Yes, there are. And I found something interesting above the washing machine. Uh huh. Two bottles of bleach. Uh huh. And I'm looking at these two bottles of bleach, and they had very different labels on them, even though they were both the same size and they were both. Same brand. Household. No, they weren't the same brand. Okay. They were different brands. And and one, I think, was the good value brand, which right. means it was probably the bargain Sam's Club or Walmart brand. And the other was uh, Clorox or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or, or some, it wasn't Clorox, but it was something I recognized. Different instructions on both. Different signal words on both. One had the signal word danger, and the other had the signal word, word warning. The one with the word danger on it had an EPA number. It also talked about how you can control athlete's foot. Really? <laughs> yes. With, I didn't know. With, uh, it's a fungicide. Basically. It is. But I didn't know it was. God, I'd be afraid my skin was going to fall off. <laughs> yeah, or I would too. But, but again, uh, would you really use it for that? And then on the other bottle of bleach, nothing about even that. though it said warning there was no there was no not even an ingredient now the ingredient hmm. in bleach is hydrochloric acid mm-hmm. for the most part and it did list that on the word on the one with the word danger chloride yeah hypo well yeah hypo- hydrochloric acid is something else but okay hypochlorite hypochlorite yeah uh and the other the one with warning on it not even an ingredient list so it wasn't even registered uh with the EPA. so it was just like a I gotta believe it was watered down because it was the bargain basement mm-hmm. bleach that it's it wasn't. I think the other bleach was like a fifty-one percent concentration, mm-hmm. and the other who knows. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing, no advice on there for controlling athletes. But mm-hmm. <laughs> on that one, among other things, mm-hmm. and then you think about it. Well, yeah, that would make sense because if you own a pool or a spa, you might be in the habit of buying lots of bleach and pouring it in the pool, or a commercial kitchen, or yeah. a medical facility. Yeah. The number one uh, reported pesticide um, uh, accident is with bleach. I believe that, yeah. You read the instructions on bleach, and you realize, and the warnings on bleach, you realize that, whoa, I should be wearing a mask and gloves and, and, very dangerous and, and don't stuff. apply this in confined areas. Right. But think of all the people pouring it in their swimming pools right. to control algae. So it's right. an algicide. Right. And, but again... Is it an amateur algicide since there was nothing on even that bottle with the word danger about using it in swimming pools? I could go to the grocery store and buy a bottle of pool chlorine at much greater price than a bottle of bleach, and yet the active ingredient is the same in both. Concentration may be different. Yeah. Uh, And per the law, you have to use the one that is labeled for use at your site, which Mm -hmm. would be your pool for your your pest, which would be algae. Right. My understanding of the law, and maybe somebody who knows more will correct me, is that the government doesn't care what you do at home. <laughs> well, they only I'll care when I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> they only care if you're if you're if if you're doing pest control for hire, so somebody's paying you to do it. Yeah. Or you're growing something that you're going to sell or you're going to process that something and sell the product you make from it. But but you could walk around naked and apply pesticides all you want at home and they would not you would not be arrested. I'm However, sure Mike Pence would be against that. <laughs> <laughs> not for the reasons we're thinking. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
but you, if you apply for hire, then you have to follow all the rules, and there are lots of rules. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and that's why I mean I've, I've been getting emails from people. Um, let's see if I can find the one from uh, a gentleman this morning who talked about uh, uh, one of the most dangerous chemicals out there are toilet bowl cleaners, mm-hmm. and uh, you need to really follow the warnings when it comes to using. Uh, those products, as far as wearing rubber gloves and mm-hmm. and a splash protector shield and all mm-hmm. that, because it's uh, you know it's, it's dangerous stuff. It is dangerous. Yeah. Stuff. All right. Again, we need to take another break, and we shall. <laughs> we and talk too much. All of a sudden, there's questions coming in. People, oh, people love their Epsom salts. Debbie. Oh boy. <laughs> oh well, it's get growing on Talk Six Fifty KSTE. Listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Along with Debbie Flower, it's your science lesson of the day here mm-hmm. on Get Growing. We've been discussing uh, all sorts of things in relation to foliar feeding, homemade pesticides, and uh, things of that uh, sort of thing. But homemade fertilizers. Homemade fertilizers, yes. All right, but getting back to uh, pesticides and how that term pesticide is just a catch all term for various classes of control for various problems you have under that umbrella of pesticides you have insecticides that obviously kill insects or control insects Uh, you have miticides which control like spider mites you have molluscicides that control slugs and snails Mm -hmm. you have an algicide that controls algae you have herbicides that control weeds you have bactericides that control bacteria. So I'm trying to think, is peach leaf curl a bacteria or a fungus? It's a bacteria, I Okay, believe. so then a copper solution would be considered a bactericide? Think about um, it. It's on the radio. Think about it. Yeah, good question. Um, it may have more than one efficacy. Yeah, there is that where it can be, uh, for instance... Something really simple like insecticidal soap, mm-hmm. which I believe, and the oils and the oils too, which have multiple goals. Right. In fact, that leads us to an email question that that came in. If I can find it here, from uh, is it Connie? No, it wasn't. It was Nadia, who said uh, she has a problem with scale on her pluots, and now they have spread to the cherry trees. There are so many different types of scale. I have the hard shell, brownish colored type. I've been scraping lucanium scale. Lucanium scale. Very yeah. good. I have been scraping off the scale from the branches. If the scale falls on the ground, is that okay, or do I need to pick them up and put them in the trash? I also did have some honeydew on the trees. I planned a dormant spray. What month is the best time? What type of oil is best? Could you give me a brand name? Uh-oh. And I'll let you do that. The last, <laughs> the, the last time Debbie was on your program, Nadia writes, she said she doesn't kill ants. No, 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 no. <laughs> You've said kill the ants to prevent aphids. No, I kill ants. Yeah, no. I, and well, I, I set up a trap that kills ants. I don't spray them. Right. I set up a, a yeah, trap because yeah, it or doesn't, a bait It doesn't station. do any good to kill ants with no. a spray. You're killing five when the problem is the other 5000. Right. You got to you got to get back to the queen and so I set up a bait of sugar and uh boric acid and let the uh workers eat that and take it back to the queen. She says, 
I have an aphid problem on my Jimmy Nardello pepper. I spray the aphids off the leaves and flowers good. every few days, but they keep coming back. What's so good about the ants that I can't kill them? No, you can kill them. You can kill them. <laughs> but you're going to have to get the queen to get the problem solved, and you don't know where that nest is. So a bait, if you don't want to make your own, there are, are, are some marketed at, at, at your local garden center. Yes, uh, look for uh, boric acid or some yes. variation of the term boric acid as the to keep everything ingredient. else safe, like the yeah. birds and your dog and your cat and your chicken and whatever. Everything else, boric acid at the con- quantity in those bait stations will not harm your animals. Right, and there are actual physical devices you can buy and fill with a liquid borate that has like I think a half percent concentration which is enough to kill the ants, but not so much that it deter or detracts them from it. They, mm-hmm. may, they may sense a problem if it's more concentrated than that. And they have to live long enough to take it back to feed their queen. That's the, the other and part of the problem, And then that kills too. the nest. Now, yeah. what about scale falling? Because I, I do that, too, with scale. If I see scale on a citrus or something, I might either scrape them off or just take a blast of water and, and wash them off. I've heard people take doobie pads to them, doobie pads, whatever right. they're called, and, and rub them off the tree. What, I would think that would kill them. Yeah, uh, They have nothing to eat at that point, and they have been physically messed with. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were really had a lot and were really concerned, I might go with an oil spray and spray the soil, and, the soil where they oh, have fallen. Okay, all right. And, I mean, as far as the best time to apply an oil to control aphids is when they're in the crawling stage. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, to determine the crawling stage of scale, put some double-sided sticky tape around a branch nearby where you see the, the scale. And then when you start seeing the crawlers stuck on the tape, that's the time to spray. But you're going to have to educate yourself with what crawlers on stuck tape looks like because a lot of things are going to yeah. stick to tape. Yes, right. No, that was a bird. <laughs> right. So I would do the dormant sprays. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, particularly late January, early February one, if I only do one, um, because and spray the trunk, spray all the branches. Uh, it's called spray to runoff. Spray the dripping so that it gets, because they can overwinter in crevices, and so you need the liquid spray to get into those crevices. Mm. And, and it's a physical kill. It has to touch them. So, uh, so you're applying it to the point where it's dripping off. Yes. Yeah. Everywhere. So yeah. you want the whole tree to be just dripping. Um, that should help tremendously. And again, you're doing this at the time of the year when there's no danger of 90 degree temperatures. Right. You're doing it late January-ish yeah. um, when the plant has no leaves on it. And yeah, it's cool temperatures. And you need six hours of drying time. Right. Yeah. So with no rain in the forecast, mm-hmm. basically, is right. when you'd want to do that. Let's see if we can get a question in here before we run out of time here. Uh, Phil in Moraga is with us. Hi, Phil. Hi. I'm, I used to live in a doobie pad a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember a, a, a poison called Aunt, Maddie's Ant Paste? Maddie's, not. Maddie's Ant Paste. <laughs> no. It was amazing stuff. It had some, it, I forget the chemical was in there, so it's illegal now, but it was you put a drop of that stuff out, and they're gone. Hmm. Well, but anyway, hey, um, I let's get to the point real quick. I have a question about some oak trees. Yes. Um, and I, there's a couple down here. There's Lobata. There's, like, probably a scrub oak, and there's a bunch of them. And they're all, you know, between 15 and 35 years old. And this arborist came out and told the homeowners that, that a couple of them um, can bear a disease that will kill the rest of them. 
but the, they all look fine. So he, he suggests taking out a couple of these, these oaks, and I'm not sure which ones he's talking about because the homeowner's not here. But Sudden oak death, maybe? Phytophthora yeah. ramorum? Yeah, Phytophthora, right? Whatever yeah. it's called. What, is there is there a certain oak that's more susceptible than others? Boy, I'm not no, up on that. Uh, native oaks basically are more susceptible since it's well, uh, rather rampant in, in the area where you live, Phil. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm on a hillside looking at the creek right now um, amongst all the poison oak I just took out. Okay. All right. So, um, so it's just a native. So. Well, there are now there's all sorts of plants that are affected by phytophthora, and I mean it, rhododendrons. For example, okay, but yeah. if you don't see a sign or and or a symptom, why take it out? That's my question. Oh well, yeah, you're you're right. Why would you? It's preventative crap, and I don't. I'm sorry about the term, but yeah, it's you know, it's like let's just spray everything because because we need to. Yeah, so, I would question uh, the arborist. Um, is he a consulting arborist, which is a person who who uh, really knows their stuff and often doesn't work, often works independently and and does not do tree removal. Or is this someone who works for a company no, that does, does tree, tree removal? That's, tree removal, that's, and that's the issue with that, that I have right so now. So then I would find, if you really want you know, a professional opinion, I would find a consulting arborist who does not do tree removal uh, and ask them to come uh, and, and you know, evaluate those trees and see if something needs to be removed as a preventative. Yeah, these guys get bonuses for upselling. Hey, um, sweet. Thank you very much. Um, go Gardner Grappler. You guys have a beautiful day. Thank, Thank you, too. Thanks. All right. Yeah. Bye. I, I've been receiving a lot of questions uh, lately from people about, well, one question in particular from a gentleman who talked about uh, he was getting some trees pruned in his yard and the arborist was insisting on painting all the cuts. Mm. And every research you find it says talks do not about, do that. Don't do that. Yeah. So I'm figuring, okay, this is just a way to make some extra money. Mm-hmm. But it it not only has it not been proven to be of any value, it could actually be harmful right. by actually giving bad insects a, a permanent a place home. To, to hide. Yeah. yeah. So a consulting arborist will cost money. You can, uh, but it's well spent because it could prevent other you know things from. You from spending money in other ways that would would maybe wreck your landscape. So you want to go to the website treesaregood.org, org, uh, which is the um, uh, will list arborists that are um, uh, licensed by the uh, uh, yeah, enter your zip code and it'll come up with a lo- list of local arborists and consulting arborists, and you can choose from those. The site is run by the International Society of Arboriculture. Right. And it's a it's a good starting point to find that consulting organist or a uh, arborist, arborist organist. <laughs> <laughs> we all need a consulting organist. We have to take a break for news. <laughs> when we come back, uh, we'll be playing our garden grappler organ here on Get Growing on Talk Six Fifty <laughs> KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet. If you are up on listening to this radio show for the last half hour, you have answers to the question. Mm -hmm. The question is, name a class of pesticide or what the product is labeled to control or eradicate. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't know. No. You, you you heard us mention various subsets of the word pesticide. The word pesticide is just a general catch-all phrase for controlling a whole host of garden problems. 
So name one or of pests. Pests, yes. Yeah, I guess yeah, they're all would be pests because in, they're in, problems. Yeah, because we they're think problems. they're pests. Right. The garden may not right. agree. So we mentioned five or six different subsets of the word pesticide, each which controls a specific problem, pest. Mm-hmm. So you can either name that subset class. I, I know I'm confusing you people, but... No, no, no. You're doing a good job. Okay. So you can either name that class or what the product is labeled to control or eradicate. For instance, if the if, let's say there was such a thing as clownicides mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> to control clowns. So if you said, uh, yeah, there's uh, something uh, I can buy a product to control uh, zombie clowns. And that that would be a good answer because then we'd say, yes, that would be a clownicide. That's just an example. It doesn't exist. Yes, as far as we know. Right. All right. So (laughs) name a class of pesticide. I'm going to go easy on you, too. And if you name a product uh, and you... We'll see if we can figure it out for you. Yeah, we'll see if we can figure it out and, and, and accept it. If you can't remember the word with a variation of the word clown aside, basically. Right. All right. So the numbers to call, you're going to be here a long time, Debbie, judging this one. 916. <laughs> oh, I think they'll get it. Okay, 916-576-1578, 916-576-1578, or 866-331-8255. Terry, I'm sorry to put you through this. 866-331-8255. Name a class of a pesticide or what the product is labeled to control or eradicate. All five callers get a prize, special bonus prize for caller five. All right, good luck to all of us. All right, so in the meantime, we will not talk pesticides. We will answer questions via the emails here. Uh, David writes in, he says, "Last, uh, he says, is it time to prune cherry trees? What dormant spray should I use now? Uh, well, the plants aren't dormant, so you yeah, don't use a dormant spray now. Yeah, uh, and it's hot, too. Yeah, and most it's dorm- over 86. My degree is 86. The general degree is 90. Yeah, and that could harm the tree to Absolutely. the point of death. Yes. So uh, David writes, last year I pruned very late in November due to me getting called to help too late. Well, you're right about cherries. Cherries should be pruned in August because those... A disease potential in uh, yes, the pruning wound. Exactly, yes. And in the wintertime, that disease gets spread by the rain. Mm -hmm. If you do it now, there's little chance of it raining until October. Right. So the wound will have closed. Yeah. He also says, the pomegranate tree bush that I have, I cut it back last year and took care of the crossover branches. When the new growth started to come out this season three months ago or so, all the upper buds and new leaves came out but then fell off. Now I only have lower growth on the bottom third of this bush that is about six feet high. I only cut off the tips of the branches back to the last old cuts. It was a mess with not having been pruned for over five years. If you have any ideas for me to make it stronger for next year, please let me know. How about leaving it alone? Yeah, or doing what's called renewal pruning, which I would do during the dormant season. And renewal pruning is removing one-third of the branches at the soil level. Um, On a pomegranate. Well, I'm trying to think. They have a single trunk, though, don't they? Pomegranates? Uh, they're a mess. Yeah, they're very twiggy. Yes. Incredible. And I had one I espaliered. <laughs> oh, you're a glutton for punishment. Yes, it took a lot of pruning. Yeah. Um, they get very twiggy inside. And so, yeah, I would do the renewal pruning. So that means you get on your tummy and you 
crawl up to the plant and you look at the branches that are at soil level and you find the thickest ones. They're the oldest ones. You're probably going to need loppers or maybe even a tree saw at this point. Did you ever try using loppers when you're on your belly? It's not easy to <laughs> no, get. No, it's not easy. Yeah. So, you know, bringing this tree back is going to, or shrub, it's not a tree, is going to be difficult. Um, but I would, I would, that will ultimately open it up and make it an easier plant to maintain. How many branches would you, what, what size branches would you leave? You take the biggest ones and leave the smallest ones. Okay, so. And you take one third of the total number. So if they're 15, right. you remove five okay. and you make them the biggest, the fattest, the fattest five. One. And you cut them off at ground level. At ground level. And that will stimulate new ones. From the base. From the base. Yeah. And the ones that are there will get thicker. And the next year you do the process again. Maybe there will be 18 then, and you remove six of the fattest. Wow, this sounds like Catholic school punishment. <laughs> it really makes, it lets the plant retain its natural shape, and it opens it up in the inside so it helps the uh, beneficial insects go through, the air go through. It keeps the plant healthier. Okay, and it, it works. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's just a lot of work. Yeah, it is, especially when you're trying to bring the plant back under control. If you do it every year, it's not a pain at all. It's pretty easy. Yeah, because you've done the dirty work first. Right. Yes. And, and then Nandinas, you do it too, and they look much better when you do it that way. They don't hang over and, and they don't get naked at the bottom. It keeps leaves all the way to the ground. It's a much prettier shrub if you prune it that way. The other uh, tree slash shrub you may want to do that too would be crepe myrtles. Right. Because you're leaving it as a shrub plant. Yes. Yeah. It, and unfortunately, not many they people get do that. They get so much aphid. Yeah, sticky. My husband said, why don't we have one? I said, because they get too many aphids. I don't want to deal with that. Yuck. (laughs) All right, but there is a movement afoot to make it the official summer tree of Sacramento. Well, it sure is pretty. Yeah. All right. Charlie from Brooklyn writes, and he sends pictures as always. He says, my friend in the community garden uh, planted a seed two to three years ago. Help, what kind of tree, fruit tree is it? Is it a cherry or a peach? seed. Um, Yeah. And now you were looking at these pictures and you were noticing the brown spots on the leaves and the bark of the tree, which you determined. And you're right. Looks very cherry-like. Very cherry-like, yes. But he's got a cross, probably, because it was bird planted, probably, or he got it out of, well, maybe not. Maybe he got it out of something he ate. Fruit, but still. Yeah. If it was a hybrid variety, it could turn out to be anything. Right. It's very dense. It's got a lot of branches and leaves on on that plant. We couldn't see any branches. All we saw were leaves in the pictures. And they have brown spots on them. And that's probably that's a da-da, leaf spot disease. I know that's a really technical name. Uh, it's a fungus probably. Uh, it's been very hot and humid in the east. That really helps funguses uh, grow. And the density of the leaves on that tree help trap moisture. They've been having dew. Um, so that uh, fungus needs free water, which is a droplet of water, to... Um, to reproduce, mm-hmm. so I think the thing that needs to be done is to prune, thin the the, the uh, plant out and do as much sanitation as pro- possible, meaning raking up all the leaves that fall off the ground, and that's going to be tough because there's all kinds of stuff. There's yeah. wood and other plants. What is that pots. tool on the ground? It, that's a very interesting tool. Yeah, it looks like a firefighting tool, actually. A, a uh, well, there's mattock. A for, yeah, mattock. That's the word. I was thinking yeah. maggot. No, it's not a maggot. <laughs> it's a maddock. A maddock, which yeah. is probably a weed for weed control right. more than likely. Yes. There's some. I can't figure out what this 
viney sort of plant is growing. Looks like a sick baccarus. Um In New York? Right. It yeah. wouldn't do well in New York. Yeah. So it's um it, they've got some work ahead of them. I wonder if it's 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 old enough to have borne fruit. I wonder if it, they've gotten useful fruit out of it. That's a good question. It's a, it's a good size for a two or three year old tree. It's huge. Yeah. All right. Hey, we got five people lined up. All righty. Grappler. So let's, Yahoo. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will get to your answers in today's Garden Grappler. Name a class of a pesticide or what that particular product is labeled to control or eradicate. Oh. We'll see. <laughs> it's Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, we have five people lined up who say they can answer today's garden grappler. Debbie Flower is here judging the quality mm-hmm. of your answers. Name a class of a pesticide. Pesticide, again, being a catch-all phrase for various categories of pesticides that kill particular problems, pests. Right. So if you can't remember the class, you may know what it controls or kills, and we can work We can work with you on this. We can work with that. All right. First up, David in Sacramento. David, go ahead. Give us a class of a pesticide, if you would, please. How about herbicide? Yay. Yay. Herbicides, of course. Kill herbs. Kill, no. Well, I guess... <laughs> If you consider mint a That's weed. a category of, of plant, so it kills plants. Yeah, well, yeah. If okay, you're yes. in native, you well, know. Isn't that not, the politically correct answer, without say, is weeds an, an, a term you can't use plants anymore? Plants you don't want, yes, weeds. Yes. Okay. yes. But it, again, it's not politically correct to use the word weeds anymore. Because it means something else. We now. have to call them plants. Plants. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because that weed might be desirable to somebody else. That's right. All right. Although I can't picture anybody wanting puncture vine. Oh. Still, David, herbicide, good answer. So I'm sending, what do we got for everybody today, Fred? We have for, where are we? Oh, the Farmer Fred Garden Calendar, suitable for posting, and uh, the soil temperature chart for planting seeds. So that'll be coming your way, David. Hey, thank you very much. You're welcome, David. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Call in number two in today's Garden Grappler. It's Salma in Elk Grove. Is it Salma? It's Saima. Saima. Okay. Yes. Saima. Okay. Rodenticide. Very good. Ooh, very, kills, rodents. Uh, mice and um, maybe, uh, I don't know, mice and rats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What, what it, about gophers? Yeah, I was going to ask that too, Debbie. Well, what it depends. Got to read the label. Yeah. Different things uh, for, yes. for different rodents. Yeah, like strychnine or something. <laughs> All right. And rodenticide, good answer there, Simon. I like that. So I'll, I'll be sending you the uh, Farmer Fred Garden Calendar and the Soil Temperature Chart for Planting Seeds. Awesome. Thanks, Simon. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Good answer. Wow. We didn't even talk about that. No, very good. Yeah. All right, who's up next? It is Kathy in Sacramento. Hi, Kathy. Hi, how are you? Fine. I, can you name one of those classes of uh, uh, pesticides? I think so. Okay. Molluscicides. Yay! And, and you pronounced it right, something I couldn't do on the first try. <laughs> All right, molluscicides. And that, of course, controls? Snails. snails. Yeah. Snails and slugs. Snails and slugs. Slugs. Yep. 
I think that's yeah. it, isn't it? Well, other mollusks are clams and oysters. <laughs> well, if, we, if that yeah, ever becomes a... Clo- I don't want those killed. No. Right. Well, unless we're the victims <laughs> of glo- global warming and all of a sudden right. we're, we're inundated with three feet of seawater, uh-huh. it, it could be a garden exactly. problem at that point. They don't walk very fast, though. Yes, they don't. All right. They're Kath- easier to catch. <laughs> yes. All right, Kathy, I'll be sending you the uh, Farmer Fred Garden Calendar and the seed planting chart. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye bye. All right. Who's up next? It is. Where are we? San Diego. Karen, how are you? Hi. Hi. How are you, Fred? We're doing fine. How's your pesticide collection? Oh, pretty big. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead and name one. How about fungicides? Very good. Which would control fungus. Yes. 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 All right. (laughs) What, What do you, Debbie, do you think is the most commonly which plant problem would fungicides most be used for in our area powdery mildew think so? thinking oh, yeah of? i'm thinking either powdery mildew or well now now we're gonna i don't want to give away an answer so i won't i'll take it up after we're done right. here but uh, yeah powdery mm-hmm. mildew yeah would be probably one of the more common ones now down in san diego uh, fungicide use might go for what's a fungus on avocados? I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, ours don't have any, I don't think. Well, good for you. All right, Karen. <laughs> well, I'll be sending you my uh, garden calendar and seed starting chart, and uh, you can adapt the Farmer Fred garden calendar to uh, everything you grow in San Diego. Sounds good. Or I'll just mark an X in every month, <laughs> and that should cover it for you. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Call at number five in today's Garden Grappler. It's Jim in Roseville. Jim, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Hey, Jim, you know what I got for a grand prize are two tickets to next Saturday's East Sacramento Edible Gardens Tour, which is coming up, obviously, in East Sacramento. It's a tour of home gardens that are spectacular. Edible Gardens. It's next Saturday, put on by the Seroptimus International and more information available at ediblegardensac.org if you're interested in attending. But, Jim, I've got two tickets for you to that. If you can name a class of pesticides. Are you looking like pyrethrins or organophosphates? No, that sometimes mm. is called the class. But would, but what would they kill? Yes, what would they kill? Just about everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, now... Organophosphates in particular... Um, kill was, what though? Kill the, name something they kill. Uh, mites. Miticide. Okay, okay well, miticide is a good answer. Miticide is a good Perfect. answer. Perfect. Yes, excellent answer. Yes. Yeah, you were you were going for a more broad term or a more narrow term. Than more we narrow, more for. technical. Yeah. Yes. But Jim, good answer with miticide. That works. So I'll be sending you those two tickets to the East Sacramento Edible Gardens tour. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks for playing our little game. All right, have All a right. good day. You too. Bye-bye. See, there you go. All right. Ta-da. Thank you, people, for listening good to the job. show. Now, what were you going to say? Okay, I had a question from last week that I said, oh, I'm going to research this and get back to you next uh-huh. week. And the person wanted to know about planting a peach seed mm-hmm. and how to go about it to get a peach tree. And we went through the you know the typical warnings of, well, what you're going to get may not be what you think it's going right. to be. It's, I mean, it'll be a peach. Depends on who Dad was. Yeah. And what and who came by, right? Who brought that. it? Yeah. So it, there's that. Now, so I I wanted to put it off till this week because I wanted to check with uh, my 
favorite reference when it comes to plant propagation, which is the American Horticultural Society book of plant propagation. Mm-hmm. It's a good book. And uh, they suggest, okay, you want to plant a peach, look up the information for pears. So apparently peach and pear uh, propagation is much the same. The good news with seeds for peaches, they're the easiest to oh. propagate. Uh, they, they only have one fork. <laughs> that, that means it's easy. Oh, for, okay, in the book. Yeah, in the book. Those are forks, yes. Spading forks, I guess. Uh, and it says in mid to late autumn or in late winter is the best time. Hmm. Now, you pointed out something that was very interesting because the instructions here say clean seeds and sow directly. Mm-hmm. And what you pointed out was, yeah, but you have to do it as soon as you pick this. Mm-hmm. The as soon as the plant comes, the fruit comes off the tree. Yeah, is to harvest the seeds, clean them, and stick them in the ground right. that same day. Don't leave them sitting Correct. in the old baby bottle for months. Right, because if you leave them, they will go dormant. All right. And it talks about, now, if you don't clean the seeds and sow directly, then you need to stratify for 90 days at 41 degrees. Explain the difference, because you'll see this word a lot, stratification, as opposed to scarification. Okay. Uh, They're both treatments for seeds to get them to germinate more easily. Scarification is the easier one to explain because it has the word scar in it. And what you need to do is scar or break the seed coat. If you think if you've ever eaten a peach, you get to that uh, really hard uh, uh, seed in the center. And and what we actually touch is the seed coat, and that needs to be uh, broken open. That allows water to enter the seed and uh, germination to begin. So that's not what they're telling you to do to the peach. What they're telling you to do is give it a cold, wet treatment. Right. Stratification. So the specific instructions are stratify for 90 days at 41 degrees. Six weeks before sowing, add enough water to cover the seeds in their bag, chill for 48 hours, drain, and return to the refrigerator. Some of the seeds may have germinated when you come to sow them. Oh, may have germinated when you come to sow them. If so, surface sow them and cover with three millimeters of fine-grade vermiculite. Transplant singly as soon as possible, then pot on in the following spring or line out in open ground. Pot on. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like you're doing the 90-day stratification, which is Mm -hmm. typically in your refrigerator. Refrigerators run about the right temperature. (laughs) And I like to use peat moss, wet the peat moss and put the seed in the peat moss because peat moss um, is a very low pH, very acidic, and it prevents fungus growing on the seed. So 90 days in the bag with the wet peat moss in the refrigerator. Then take it out, rinse it, drain it, and and they may have already germinated, and then plant it. And when you plant it, cover it with vermiculite, they're saying. So it needs some light, apparently, because vermiculite can be used to cover seeds that need light to germinate. Yeah, I think three millimeters might be, what, a quarter inch? Uh, there's Oh, really? You can do 25 millimeters per inch. All right, so three millimeters would be one-eighth of an inch. Yeah, about. That's very a, little. Yeah, very little. And it, vermiculite also holds moisture. But when I worked at an ag experiment station, they planted out a bunch of cherry seeds for some experiment, and all the birds came and ate them. <laughs> yeah, there is so that So you got to watch out for that. I don't know if, if they would come for the peach seeds too, but you got to watch out for that. Birds will, uh, so I might put a screen and anchor it somehow it would have to be a screen it couldn't be a row cover because then you might be denying it too much light right it sounds like it needs light if you're using vermiculite to cover it yeah vermiculite if you see seeds that say scatter on the surface seeds have to stay wet 
if you wet them and they dry out, they die. You can't resurrect them. So you, they have to stay wet, not dripping, but moist to germinate. And so vermiculite holds uh, the moisture because it's, uh, I think of it like an accordion. It's like layers and layers. It's mica, if you know your rocks. It's layers and layers of uh, expanded like an accordion. And the water gets into those uh, crevices and it holds a lot of moisture, but it's very shiny. So it also reflects light. So if the seeds need to be on the surface, it means they need light, but they still always need to be wet, and so you have to put vermiculite on top of them, just a thin layer, like an eighth of an inch. And hopefully not develop fungal diseases. Yeah, I've never had that happen. In, I've used vermiculite a lot. i used it with students in the greenhouse. We've never had fungus grow in the vermiculite. Hmm, okay, all right. Again... Debbie Flower, we have learned so much from you today. Oh, thank you. Thank it's you. always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So uh, why don't you go ahead and plug your latest book, your speaking engagements, <laughs> and all that. Okay. I'm a retired lady. All right. You going to come back next month, maybe? Uh, yeah. Send me dates, and we'll see what we can all right. match up. Good. Always a pleasure having you here, uh, talking the science of gardening and, mm-hmm. and, and everything in between, including grackles. <laughs> Anyway, all right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Coming up, we're we're talking with Julie Jensen, Sacramento County Ag Commissioner, about the Oriental Fruit Fly that's on the way as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. A portion of Sacramento and Yolo counties have been placed under quarantine for the Oriental Fruit Fly following the detection of 15 flies in and around the southern part of the city of Sacramento near the Lemon Hill community. The quarantine zone something like 123 square miles. It's bordered on the north by El Camino Avenue, on the south by Laguna Boulevard, on the west by the Sacramento River, and on the east by Bradshaw Road. And they're serious about maintaining this quarantine. The Oriental Fruit Fly is known to target over 230 different fruit, vegetable, and plant commodities. Damage occurs when the female fruit fly lays her eggs inside the fruit. The eggs hatch into maggots and tunnel through the flesh of the fruit, which makes it unfit for consumption. We're talking with Julie Jensen. She is the Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner. Let's talk about the effect of oriental fruit flies on the home gardener. And this is where it's very important because more than likely the oriental fruit fly probably hitchhiked in somebody's luggage and a piece of fruit or or a vegetable or something like that and got established here. It certainly didn't fly here from Hawaii or Asia, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. Uh, and you're right, that is the most likely way. You know, it's um, it's difficult. We have a, a widely diverse ethnic um, population, and some of our cultures have a difficult time finding some of the fruits and vegetables um, that they're used to cooking with for their ethnic dishes that they're used to eating. And so uh, sometimes people have something shipped from back home, you know, so that they can have the dishes that they're, the food that they're used to having. And that's one of the ways that we get, you know, some of these tests. So it's very important for the home gardeners in that zone, in the quarantine zone of 123 square miles, not to move produce outside of the quarantine zone frankly don't move it at all so their options i guess would be to eat it preserve it or do what so they can eat it preserve it 
process it. They can compost it as long as that compost is going to stay on the property where it is. Or if they, you know, if they've got fruit that's fallen off trees and stuff that they want to get rid of, they can double bag it in plastic bags and put it in the regular garbage. The main message we want to get out is please do not put your fruits and vegetables in the green waste. Do not do that. Double bag it and put it in the regular garbage if you need to get rid of it. There has been a little bit of confusion about that in the press as far as what you do with uh, the damaged fruits and vegetables. A lot of reports have been saying to uh, bag it and then call you, but you're saying to put it in the regular trash. Right. And actually, if you're concerned, if you're seeing some maggots or you're, you know, you've opened some fruit and you see something, maggots crawling around in there, whatever. Oh, heck yeah. You call us and we will come out and get it. Originally, when this first started, we were going to pick up the fruit, but I'm afraid that it could get so large that it could hamper our abilities to do some of the other duties that we need to do to keep this infestation in hand and keep it contained. So that's why we've gone to, what we would do was we would collect it, we would take it to the landfill and make sure that it got properly buried, but we've been working with the landfill to make sure that the garbage that is coming from the quarantine area is going to get properly buried and fairly quickly, and the fact that these are double bagged in plastic, that should be a safe way to dispose of them. Many farmers and homeowners are worried about the processes that will be used to control this pest. They might be thinking medfly or mosquitoes, and maybe they have concerns about aerial spraying. But actually, when it comes to controlling the oriental fruit fly, there are much more gentler methods of controlling this pest, and many of these methods are rather non-intrusive. Actually, you know, if we were going to have to get an infestation of an exotic invasive, this is one of the better ones to get because of that very reason. The treatment is much less intrusive than a lot of the other exotic invasive uh, treatment. And it's also a much softer material. Um, they're actually using, uh, it's called GF120, and it's actually a material that it's uh, spinosad, and it's actually approved for organic farming use. So um, it's a much softer material, and that's great as far as, you know, helping to make the public feel more comfortable with the treatment. But also um, it's done with a small, in a small gel that has a, um, it has a, a male attractant, and then it has the, the GF120 in it, and they put it up on either up in a tree or up on a telephone pole so they don't have to go on each person's property and be in their face doing a full foliar treatment over their whole property. And that just makes the whole program a lot less intrusive to the public and, and much more palatable. Also, we do have a few properties where we've had multiple fly finds on the property and the properties immediately adjacent to that, those are getting foliar treatment. But again, it's with this, um, it's a gel type spray and it's using the GF120. So it's the spinosad. So it's a much, much softer material. So, so yeah, if we had to have one, this is the better one to have. Is there confiscation of produce involved in this? So far to date, we haven't done that. Um, that is, 
uh, one of the possibilities is fruit stripping. And we haven't had to do that yet, but I'm not going to say that that's out of the realm of possibility. So the reason for these uh, attractants is to attract the male fruit flies. They perish after consuming it. And uh, actually, that approach has worked uh, over the past several decades for controlling this pest in California, hasn't it? Yes, actually, this is one of the invasives that uh, California has a pretty good record on being able to eradicate small infestations. They've been very successful. And again, the bottom line for all this is if you're growing produce, do not move it out of the quarantine area. Consume it or get rid of it. And don't don't bring the pests in if you're traveling, especially traveling overseas where oriental fruit flies or even to Hawaii where oriental fruit flies are established. Don't pick up any hitchhikers by bringing home uh, some uh, fruit or vegetables. Right. Bringing home or don't ask people to mail stuff to you too. also. All right. Julie Jensen is the Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner. Julie, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Anytime. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. You know, we just heard about uh, Julie Jensen talking about the impact of oriental fruit flies on home gardeners. There is going to be impact on the local farming community as well as farmers markets and those who sell at farmers markets. And we have those details coming up during the KSTE Farm Hour, noon to 1 o'clock today. So we'll be talking with uh, more conversation with Julie and with the California Department of Food and Agriculture about what farmers are going to have to do who might be selling their products at local farmers' markets. And they will have to take special precautions. If <coughs> Excuse me, I get choked up talking about the oriental fruit fly if they're selling within the uh, quarantine area. So uh, that's coming up on the KSTE Farm Hour noon to one o'clock right here on this uh, very radio station. Also on the Farm Hour, we talk about the uh, Trump administration's tariff relief package for farmers. And uh, looks like most of the money's going to soybean growers. I won't say soybeans are a big crop in California. In fact, I'd almost call them a non-existent crop. I even contacted the California Department of Food and Agriculture to see how much acreage in California is soybeans, and they basically said, we don't have any, <laughs> unless it's some backyard grower. But uh, no, soybeans, not a commercial crop. But they're getting most of the tariff relief money that the Trump administration has earmarked for farmers, $3.6 billion out of $6 billion. And um, the other big group is pork. So it's uh, the states in the Midwest that's getting most of this compensation. And, uh, well... California farmers are a little miffed that uh, even though they are affected uh, by this tariff war going on with several nations, especially uh, the nut crops of California, the walnuts, the almonds, the pistachios, and uh, they're wondering, uh, what does that leave for us? So we talk about that as well. And uh, mentioned the oriental fruit fly. And we will talk about uh, wine grape growers are in the middle of their harvest season and smoke taint is near the list of the top of their worries. So, well, that and labor shortages, too. So we'll have all that crop reports and a lot more on this week's uh, KSTE Farm Hour, noon to 1 o'clock on this very program. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, upcoming garden events uh, in our area. And uh, coming up on Thursday, the uh, Sacramento County Master Gardeners will be at the uh, 
Florin Certified Farmers Market there at 5901 Florin Road in Sacramento. And you may see some interesting... When you would go to a farmer's market between now and over the next six months in the Sacramento area, especially in that quarantine area, you just might see all the produce that's on display under wraps, underneath covers, in bins with covers. Because the only way these farmers can bring the produce in is to bring it in in a sealed container, display it so that it's protected, and then transport it away at the end of the day in sealed containers back to where they live. Now, what as you heard what Julie said earlier, is uh, the goods have to be uh, consumed on, on site as far as home gardeners go and with commercial farmers in the quarantine area. There aren't that many farmers in the quarantine area, but there are some growers who do sell processed goods at the local farmers markets, and that's okay. So if you've got a tomato crop, well, you may have to make salsa. If you have peaches, you're selling at a farmer's market and you're within the quarantine area. If you want to move it off, you will have to process it. So you're looking at jams and jellies or dehydrated fruit or something like that. So there are those hoops that uh, commercial growers are going to have to go through. Anyway, the farmer's market uh, Thursday on Florin Road, 5901 Florin Road. The Master Gardeners will be there from 8 to noon to answer all of your uh, garden questions. And maybe you could even purchase the... uh, 2019 Sacramento County uh, Master Gardener, Master Food Preserver Guide and Calendar. That's available now, too. All right. And uh, what else is going on? The Master Gardeners on Saturday will be taking part in the Edible Gardens Tour that you heard me talking about a few minutes ago at various locations to answer your garden questions. That should be an interesting tour. Six East Sacramento homes are going to be showcasing their gardens featuring edible fruits and vegetables planted along with the regular landscape. Tickets for the tour, $20 in advance, $25 when purchased the day of the tour. You can purchase the tickets in advance at local nurseries such as the Green Acres Nursery on Jackson Road, East Sacramento Hardware on Folsom Boulevard, Tallini's Nursery on Folsom Boulevard, Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery on Fair Oaks Boulevard, and the Plant Foundry at 3500 Broadway. They all have tickets for sale, or you can purchase them the day of the event. And for more information about it, you can visit the website they've set up for this, ediblegardensac.org. It's a fundraiser, again, for the Seroptimists of Sacramento. And uh, it's uh, in particular, it's going to benefit at-risk women and girls, the Dream It, Be It program for teenage girls, the Live Your Dream program for single head of household women. And uh, again, more information, ediblegardensac.org for tickets about the Edible Gardens Tour next Saturday, 10 to 4 o'clock in East Sacramento. All right. Also coming up next Saturday, up in the foothills down in uh, Tuolumne County, the Master Gardeners there have their plant sale going on from 10 until 1 o'clock. It'll be at their demonstration garden at 251 South Beretta Street in Sonora. If you want to get some good foothill plants and other plants, next Saturday and Sunday, over at the uh, Shepherd Garden and Art Center at 3330 McKinley Boulevard in uh, McKinley Park. It's the Begonia Show. It's the annual plant show and sale put on by the Joan Coulott Sacramento branch of the American Begonia Society. They invite you to attend their spectacular show and sale. It's free next Saturday and Sunday. It's 10 to 4 on Saturday, 10 to 3 on Sunday. 
The show offers a rare opportunity to explore the many varieties of gorgeous begonias grown by local growers. Over 1,000 beautiful begonia plants will be for sale, most for $9 each. The sale plants will be unique species not typically available for sale in local nurseries. And again, that's the Begonia Society show and sale next Saturday and Sunday at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center. Want to learn how to propagate roses? You can do so at the Old City Cemetery next Saturday from 10 until noon. The Historic Rose Garden volunteers will be showing you propagation techniques, a hands-on rose propagation workshop to teach participants how to select the best plant material, prepare the cuttings, and root them using what they call the terrarium approach. The workshop participants will have the opportunity to take and stick a few cuttings of their own to take home with them. The class is free, but donations are gratefully accepted and help support operations at the Rose Garden. The Old City Cemetery is at 1000 Broadway. That would be 10th and Broadway. Free street parking on surrounding streets. It's at the Sacramento Historic Cemetery next Saturday, 10 to noon. They're at 1000 Broadway. Coming up uh, on Saturday, next Saturday, uh, Master Food Preservers up in El Dorado County have a low-sugar, no-sugar class. If you don't eat jam or jelly because it's too sweet, they will teach you how to make them taste like fresh fruit. In this make-and-take workshop, you will create a healthier, healthier alternative to the standard jam or jelly. There's a $20 fee for the low- and no-sugar workshop. It'll be at the Bethel Delfino Agricultural Building at 311 Fair Lane in Placerville next Saturday morning, 9 to noon, there in Placerville, put on by the Master Food Preservers of El Dorado County. Over in Napa County, they have a houseplant class coming up uh, next Saturday from 9.30 to 11.30, Houseplants for Health and Happiness. And it'll be uh, at the American Canyon Library at 300 Crawford Way in American Canyon. So that's uh, put on by the Napa County Master Gardeners. Uh, what else is going on here? Um, oh, up in Nevada City, or Grass Valley, Raddy, uh, N- Grass Valley rather, uh, put on by the Nevada County Master Gardeners, uh, a winter or a cool season vegetable class. Eat your greens, how to grow delicious vegetables all winter, especially in a, in a cool spot like Grass Valley, 10 to noon at their demonstration garden in Grass Valley at 1036 West Main Street. September is a good month to get established your oh, cool season vegetables. So now's the time. And I noticed that when I was out at Green Acres Nursery yesterday, they had a big selection of greens available uh, for planting. So if you're into eating healthy, eating greens, good, good way to go. Now's the time to plant them and grow them yourself. Now, okay, what else is going on? Uh, the uh, Open Garden is next Saturday at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center from 9 until noon in Fair Oaks Park. It's free, and they'll be uh, pruning boysenberries, creating a wildlife habitat, preparing a cool-season vegetable garden, propagating herbs, late-season irrigation, as well as end-of-season fruit tree and vineyard tasks. And plus, they'll be answering your gardening questions as well and offering up the 2019 Gardening and Preservation Guide and Calendar for uh, just $10. But it's the event is free itself, so it's the open garden at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center Next Saturday, 9 to noon, 11549 Fair Oaks Boulevard in Fair Oaks. And uh, more information, you can call 916-875-6913. So there you go. Lots of good garden events coming up uh, 
in the next week or so. If you have a garden event coming up for the fall, send it to me via email with the details, fred at farmerfred.com. Try to get the event information to me about two weeks in advance because I am very slow. Thank you. Don't send it to me on a Saturday night thinking I'm going to remember to read it the following day. Chances are that ain't going to happen. All right. What else do you want to talk about, Fred, before you go away here? We'll get into your email here in a second. Um, Was there anything else about the oriental fruit fly that we did not cover that we should cover? We mentioned, uh, if you heard the interview with Julie, and it it makes sense to... uh, reinforce what uh, Julie Jensen was telling us is that if you live in that quarantine area of 123 square miles in the city of Sacramento, again, uh, bordered by North uh, El Camino on the north, Laguna Boulevard on the south, Sacramento River on the west, and on the east by Bradshaw Road, if you have damaged fruit, fallen fruit, don't put it in your green waste. Put it in your regular trash, but only after double bagging it. That's the important thing, and don't move it off your premises, any produce off your premises, and either eat it fresh or process it. You know, dehydrate, freeze, can. This is where the master food preservers come in. Sacramento County has a very active master food preserver program, and I bet that their next few classes they have coming up will be very popular indeed. And you can find out more information about their classes at 875-6913 in the 916 area code. All right, which brings up a good topic because many of us are harvesting fruits and vegetables right now. Where do you store them when you take them indoors? Do you put them in the refrigerator? Do you put them on the counter, then in the refrigerator? Or do you only store them on the counter? Everyone has, every fruit or vegetable has its preference for maximum flavor and nutrition. The UC Davis Post-Harvest Technology Group came out with a chart called Storing Fresh Fruits and Vegetables for Better Taste. If you uh, Google that phrase, do an Internet search on the phrase Storing Fresh Fruits and Vegetables for Better Taste, UC Davis, I'm sure this chart will come up and you can print it out and uh, put it up there in your kitchen to remind you where things go. For instance, what do you store in the refrigerator? If it's going to be longer than seven days, apples in the refrigerator. Uh, In the refrigerator, Apricots, Asian pears, blackberries, blueberries, cherries, figs, grapes, raspberries, and strawberries. For vegetables to go straight from the garden to the refrigerator, artichokes, asparagus, green beans, broccoli, cabbage, carrots, leafy vegetables, which would include lettuce and spinach, radishes, and uh, sweet corn, as well as summer squash. Who knew? We've been storing the summer squash on the counter. It would do better in the refrigerator. All right. And uh, at room temperature, basically on the counter, if it's less than seven days, apples, everything else on the counter, bananas, grapefruit, lemons, limes, mandarins, mangoes, muskmelons, oranges, persimmons, pomegranates, watermelons. Uh, What else? Um, Garlic, peppers, potatoes, and tomatoes can be stored at room temperature. So there you go. Time for me to get on out of here, making room for the news and the KSTE Farm Hours next. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Terry, for all your work there pushing buttons. Appreciate it. Back again next week with another thrill-packed episode of Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE.